Support for IPR comes from Security Abstract Company, providing trusted, comprehensive abstract and title services to the Johnson County real estate market since 1898. Located in downtown Iowa City and at securityabstractcompany.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, toward the end of the hour today, how the impact of witch trials from long ago is still felt today. Um, but first, we'll discuss some recent polling. In a few minutes, uh, political scientist Dave Peterson will be along with a couple of his ISU poli-sci students. He's been tracking Iowa voter opinions with a series of ISU civics polls ahead of the January 15th caucuses. Uh, We'll hear about the second of five installments of that poll in just a few minutes. Also earlier this month, the newest Grinnell College national poll. Peter Hansen joins us now, associate professor of political science, also director of the Grinnell College national poll. Hello again, Peter. Hi, Ben. Thanks. It's great to be here. Great to have you on. Before we dig into some of the very interesting poll results of this latest Grinnell College National Poll, I wanted to have your reaction to, of course, the news on the weekend that the former vice president, Mike Pence, dropped his bid for the Republican presidential nomination, ending his campaign for the White House after, well, really struggling to raise money and to gain traction in the polls. Uh, In your opinion, why did he fail to gain traction? Well, I think this has been a long time in coming. Uh, Pence has been campaigning hard for months now without really being able to gather much support and momentum behind his candidacy, uh, having a difficult time raising money and that sort of thing. And I really think this all goes back to um, the way that uh, Mike Pence handled uh, the transition to the Biden presidency, the fact that he proceeded with certifying that election over the objections of Donald Trump. I don't think that Trump supporters ever forgave him for that. Um, And I don't think um, that his explanations that he felt he was doing the right thing ultimately were persuasive to them. And so um, he just hasn't been able to win over what could have been a natural group of supporters for him. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's move into um, some of these poll results from your latest poll. We have about, what, 11 weeks until the first test for these Republican candidates in the Iowa caucuses. Uh, Biden presumed to be the nominee for the Democrats. Uh, Donald Trump, a commanding lead in poll after poll we've seen for months uh, among Republicans. What did you ask in your latest national poll about this race? Well, we treated the 2024 presidential race as having two presumptive frontrunners, Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump. And we asked our respondents how they would vote in a prospective matchup between those two candidates. Um, And here we found that the race was exactly tied, uh, 40% for Joe Biden, 40% for Donald Trump. Um, But we had 18% of our respondents saying that they would vote for someone else. So I think that was the really interesting set of findings we had. Uh, That's an enormous number of people for a poll like this. It's a lot of uh, voters who um, were really still up for grabs, I think. And so we're not getting a clear signal right now where this race stands. I think it all depends on where those voters come down. Mm -hmm. And independents in this poll? Well, independents in particular would prefer to vote for someone else. So 30% of independents uh, tell us that they would prefer to vote for someone else. Now, one of the things that's striking about that fact is, you know, oftentimes a year out from an election, you might say that a large number of undecided voters or or voters who say they want to vote for someone else just don't know the candidates very well. Um, Now, we have an incumbent president, so obviously he's very well known, but sometimes it might be because the challenger is not well known. That's not the case here. 
everybody knows who Joe Biden and Donald Trump are. Um, they're very well understood. And we have uh, nearly one in five voters who say they want to vote for someone else. So that's a real signal, I think, of dissatisfaction with the choices right now. Mm-hmm. I wonder what are the implications you see there, Peter, for the other Republican candidates uh, vying to challenge Trump? Uh, a new poll, Iowa poll, I think, out today showing Nikki Haley now tied for second place with Ron DeSantis. Uh, what what will these other camps, these other campaigns being make, make of uh, these and other results? Well, I, I think that the challengers um, to Donald Trump for the Republican nomination have their work cut out for them. There's a pretty wide gap between Trump uh, and the rest of the Republican field. Now, there's still time left, of course, you know, and, and matters can change. But I think one thing we've noted about Trump is the durability of his support, um, the fact that it is very hard uh, to move his supporters from him to another candidate. And so, uh, I couldn't really tell you what it would take for one of those other candidates really to gain traction. I think we just haven't, in all the years we've been observing Donald Trump since he became president, we haven't seen anything that really shakes that support. And so uh, I guess personally, I'm skeptical that something will. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, on to some of other fascinating areas you covered in this latest poll. Um, you looked at, um, surveyed how members of opposing parties view each other and their values. What did you come up with there? That's right. Well, we know that political polarization is quite deep in the United States. And so one of the things we wanted to do just to assess the depth of that polarization uh, was to ask each party about the other party. And here we wanted to ask them about common American values with the overall question being, can a Democrat see what's best in Republicans or can a Republican see what's best in Democrats? Do they think the other side holds common American values? And so we asked whether our respondents felt the other side valued freedom, uh, believed in the value of hard work, supported the Constitution, wanted what's best for the country, believed all people should be treated equally, and are open to compromise. And what was really striking here was that across the board, each party had dismal assessments of the other side. Um, So in every single case, we had less than half of Democrats or less than half of Republicans saying that the other side held those common American values. Hmm. So just let me give you an example. Um, You know, do Republicans believe that Democrats believe in the value of hard work? Well, only 21 percent of Republicans said that Democrats uh, believe in the value of hard work. Um, Now, Democrats gave a better assessment to Republicans, but still less than half. Only 43 percent of Democrats said that Republicans believe in the value of hard work. So even on these really uh, common, broadly shared values, the parties assess each other poorly. Yeah. What do you make of that? That, I mean, demonizing the other and and really, I I don't know what how, how these attitudes are formed. What are your thoughts there? Well, I think a lot of the attitudes are formed by exposure to the national media. Um, One of the really interesting things we found, actually, is that in their day-to-day lives, Democrats and Republicans don't encounter each other that much. In fact, 50 percent of Democrats and Republicans say that they only talk politics with someone on the other side more than a few times a year. So uh, just in their everyday life, there doesn't seem to be much interaction happening. What was particularly interesting, though, is that to the best we can tell, having studied the data, the frequency of contact with the other side actually doesn't even seem to make much difference. 
um, in attitudes toward the other party. Hmm. And that's because I think a, a lot of those messages are just coming in from the national media, from national candidates. They're being absorbed by each side, and it's uh, and it's just reinforcing these negative views of members of the opposing party. A few minutes left with Peter Hansen, director of the Grinnell College National Poll, talking about their uh, latest uh, poll released uh, earlier in October. Uh, fascinating here also in this poll, democracy is under threat. Uh, majority of, Mar- of Americans think this, uh, regardless of the party they uh, affiliate with. Um, but uh, so, so what's interesting about this? Uh, I assume it's democracy is under threat, but uh, they have different, different views of, of why and how it's under threat. That's right. So we asked a simple question. Do you think American democracy is under major threat, minor threat, or do you think it is not under threat at all? And here we found that a majority of our respondents say that it is under major threat. 57% of our respondents said that it is under major threat. Um, But I think there's really different explanations for why each party has reached this conclusion. Um, For Republicans, uh, I think this is a reflection of the belief that the 2020 election was stolen, that elections can't be trusted, uh, this constant drumbeat of criticisms they've been hearing about elections from Donald Trump. But what's really interesting is the Democratic side. When we asked uh, this question uh, two years ago, Democrats were much more optimistic about the state of American democracy. Um, We saw a 21% increase in this poll compared to the one we took two years ago in the percentage of Democrats who now say that democracy is under major threat. That's just a seismic jump. Um, And I think that's a reflection of the fact that, you know, having observed January 6th, the storming of the Capitol and and those sorts of things, Democrats were alarmed. But I I think then with Biden assuming the presidency and, and initially looking like Donald Trump might sort of, you know, fade into retirement, uh, that Democrats felt like things were um, on a good path. But now Donald Trump is back. He's uh, facing trials, but still the likely Republican nominee. I think this has Democrats alarmed. I think they are very concerned that uh, Donald Trump will be back in the presidency, and that's making them concerned about uh, American democracy. Mm-hmm. We have a couple minutes left, Peter. Let's squeeze in the, the polling attitudes about revising the U.S. Constitution. What in particular? Well, this was really interesting. Uh, we we asked about uh, people's sentiments on revising the Constitution just to get a sense of how deep their support was for change. Um, here we found really overwhelmingly strong bipartisan support for two major kind of reforms to the Constitution. Uh, First, 86% of our respondents want to see term limits set on members of Congress. That includes over 80% of Democrats and 80% of Republicans. That kind of bipartisan agreement is really unusual today. It really got our attention. But similarly, we also see strong bipartisan support for 15-year term limits for Supreme Court justices. Uh, currently, they have life terms. So um, 60% of, Demo- uh, of Republicans wanted those term limits and 80% of Democrats. So again, bipartisan agreement. Mm-hmm. The other one that really got our attention um, was support for abolishing the Electoral College. Now, this had um, majority support. 59% of our respondents wanted to abolish the Electoral College and just have a national popular vote for president. But there's a big partisan divide here. So only 43% of Republicans wanted that, in, uh, in contrast to 74% of Democrats. And that makes some sense to me. I mean, I think the Electoral College has benefited Republicans in recent years. Uh, I think they're 
understandably more supportive of it uh, than Democrats are. Um, but still, the, the overall bipartisan support there was noteworthy. Mm. Fascinating. Uh, Peter Hansen, um, your next Grinnell poll uh, quickly will be out in the spring? Yep, that's right. It'll come out in the middle of the spring. We'll make sure to check in with you. Peter Hansen, Associate uh, Professor of Political Science uh, and Director of the Grinnell College National Poll. Until next time, Peter, thanks. Thank you. Coming up after a short break, political scientist Dave Peterson will be along with a couple of his ISU poli-sci students. Uh, He's been tracking Iowa voter opinions with a series of polls ahead of the January 15th caucuses. Uh, And uh, we'll look into that right after this break. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with more River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Coming up a little bit later in the hour, how the impact of witch trials from long ago, centuries ago, how those themes are still felt today. But first, a different sort of... Uh, sorcery, you might say, on this eve of Halloween, um, divining the attitudes of a large population based on small samples. In other words, polling. Dave Peterson joins us from our Ames studio, Luke and Professor of Political Science at Iowa State University. Hi, Dave. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me back. Well, I hope you didn't take any uh, offense there at saying you, you work not, in not- a sort of sorcery, huh? Not very much, no. <laughs> okay, it is after all the day before Halloween. I thought I could do that. Uh, you are the organizer of the ISU Civics Poll, uh, analyzing results uh, with assistance from four of your undergrad students, and uh, introduce us to the students you have with us and a couple helping out. Sure. So there's there's four uh, undergrads who are working with me on this, and today I'm joined by uh, Haley Stone and Eleanor Chalstrom, who are two uh, of the political science majors here at ISU. Okay. Haley, Eleanor, uh, welcome to the studio. Uh, Before we talk about your latest installment, the second in this uh, five-part series, uh, Dave, quickly, and I asked um, uh, Peter Hansen about this beforehand, Uh, we had the news on the weekend, the former vice president, Mike Pence, dropping out uh, in his bid. Um, uh, Any surprise to you about this? Um, if anything, it surprised it took it took him this long to drop out. Um, he was going nowhere in the polls. He was usually uh, under one percent in in the two uh, polls we've been doing, with over twenty percent opposed to him. Uh, you know, his campaign finance uh, reports were were pretty bad. Um, it just looked like there was no way for him to gain any traction. Or no real shot of him, you know, actively improving his poll numbers. Yeah, and um, because he crossed the former president uh, at the, at the time when the power was <laughs> transitioned, uh, they, Trump supporters never forgave him. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a little bit of that. I also think it's a little bit of he didn't really excite them either. Um, you know, he 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 ran and this as this sort of stoic Reagan Republican. Um, 
But, you know, at the, all the events I was at and it sort of shows up in some of our data, there was just no excitement about him either. So it's not even just the sort of opposition, but he was just, he was just kind of boring. Um, and, uh, that sort of sets him apart from the rest of the candidates. Cause you could say a lot of things about them, but not really the, that they're boring. Mm. Let's talk about this ISU civics poll, the latest installment. Remind us before we dig into the October, uh, installment, um, uh, the, the thinking behind this poll, the design behind the series of five. Sure, Ben. Yeah. So uh, starting in September, we're doing monthly polls. So uh, uh, this is we've now had two done. We're going to be back in the field in, in the middle of November. Um, and you know, part of the idea is that the consistency of asking, um, you know, with the same approach every month helps us get a sense of, of what's going on in the race. Um, the other sort of unique thing about what we're doing, uh, as opposed to the Iowa poll that you talked to Peter about, um, is we're re-interviewing some of the same respondents. So not only do we know the sort of snapshot of the state of the race today, uh, but we also have a sense of, who is changing their mind, if anyone, and and that can give us a little bit of leverage over why they might be changing their mind. All right. And these are Iowa uh, poll respondents, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's Iowa poll respondents. Um, and I think mostly what we're going to talk about is uh, likely caucus goers, right? Okay. So it's, it's you know, that's the thing we're trying to explain or trying to trying to predict and forecast. And so th- those are the respondents that, that we're going to talk about. Okay. So how does this October poll compare with what you did in September? What are the the highlights, the changes, the shifts you're seeing? Uh, you know, the, the, the striking thing was the lack of change. So, mm. um, you know, we did this four years ago for the Democrats as well. And if you remember the Democratic race four years ago, there was a lot of movement, right? Candidates were up, candidates were down. Um, and then this time, it's, it's only two waves in, but there's very, very little change. Right. Not only is, is Donald Trump uh, the, the prohibitive favorite right now with over 50 percent both races, he went up a touch. Um, but there's not a lot of uh, coalescing behind this, this sort of second tier. There was a little bit of movement um, that Nikki Haley did a little bit better than she did the month before. Um, Vivek Ramaswamy did a little bit worse than he'd done the month before. But a lot of it was really the overarching uh, uh uh, conclusion was that not much had changed. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, let's go to your students, uh, uh, Haley and uh, Eleanor. Um, uh, let's first of all get a, a sense of uh, your roles in working on this poor poll. Haley, would you go first? Uh, you're a, a junior at ISU, uh, majoring in political science and Spanish, I understand. Yeah, so um, we meet all together and discuss um, sort of what the Republican field looks like. And we've, um, as students, developed our own research questions that we want to answer. And so then we meet privately with Dr. Peterson to talk about um, how we can create questions that will help us answer our overall um, research question. And then... um, from there, we send the poll into the field, and when we get the results back, we kind of dive into that and create figures so that we can better understand the results. Mm-hmm. And Eleanor, does that mirror more or less what you are doing as well, or a different take? You're a senior yeah, in political. Si- you're a senior in political science and journalism. Want to throw that in there? <laughs> yeah, I think each of us have kind of a research field that we're a little more interested in. Um, we all kind of do the same things. They resemble each other. The work mirrors each other, but we're looking at different specifics within our poll. My specific um, emphasis is on the emotions these 
survey respondents are feeling towards the Republican candidates right now. I'm looking at um, enthusiasm levels, anxiety levels, anger, and disgust. Mm. Um, so respondents can mm-hmm. just kind of go about how they feel, and we can gauge what the Republican caucus is going to look like based off of those things. You, so, so, Eleanor, based on with your focus more specifically on emotions, uh, help us understand a little bit more about how you how you measure emotions in respondents, how you use questions to do that. Yeah. So we just ask them which of the following, if any of the Republican candidates for president, have you have made you feel and then insert the emotion um, and then they can click when they're going through the poll, which um, if any or if all of the candidates make them feel that way. Mm-hmm. And Eleanor, in this latest poll, as far as emotions, uh, any surprises for you? Um, what uh, What do you see there? I mean, before this poll, I wasn't particularly in tune what's going on in the Republican world. Um, so it was surprising to me to see how angry people were with particularly Chris Christie and Mike Pence. Um, but also, it's not surprising to see that 64% of Republicans that uh, responded to our survey said they're enthusiastic about Donald Trump. And then the second um, amount of enthusiasm is Ron DeSantis at 42%. Mm-hmm. And to Haley, uh, to you, did you have a more specific area of focus that uh, pertains to this latest installment? Yeah, so I was particularly interested in... Um, Republicans who are likely caucus goers that are um, not supporting Donald Trump. So kind of looking at Donald Trump as like a challenged incumbent and um, why still half of um, Republicans say or roughly half say that they are not going to support him in the caucus. Mm. Um, Yeah. So we looked at uh, the indictments January 6th, it just being time for a change and um, people liking other candidates better, as well as policy priorities, and kind of asked respondents if they are not supporting um, Donald Trump as their first choice of a candidate, why not? And then, yeah, looking at those responses. Yeah. And Dave, back to you uh, on that last, the, 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 the part about not supporting Trump. Um, uh, help us understand there how, how you weighed that and what the results were in the second installment. Uh, sure, Ben. So, I mean, you know, the idea is if we think about Donald Trump as an incumbent, like Haley said, you know, it's kind of surprising he's only at 50 percent. Um, you know, the I think a lot of the coverage has been, you know, oh, wow, he's he's dominating the race. But, you know, if if an incumbent were only at 50 percent, that would that would be pretty bad. I mean, if you look sort of historically, that that's that's quite bad. Um, and so, you know, we, we were trying to gauge why mm-hmm. um and like haley said the, the the question sort of asked you know which of the following reasons that, that haley had outlined um you know are you not supporting and so then we just sort of looked at at the the folks who aren't supporting trump um both those who might be going to the caucus and those who might not um you know sort of which of those things is it and it's and it's a mix of them um across uh across the the four about thinking about the indictments or january 6th or the um you know, that they just simply prefer another candidate or that it's time for a change. Mm-hmm. Do we know there, Dave, if, uh, you know, if it comes down to, in fact, Biden versus uh, Trump as the two major party candidates there, that these people who do not support Trump will, um, they move over to the Trump column or will they, what will they do when faced with just this, 
the, the choice between the two candidates in the major parties. Of course, there are other candidates in other parties. Um, we didn't really ask about that. Um, you know, Haley did ask the question um, on the survey about who did you support in, in 2020? Um, and I don't know, if Haley, if you want to sure. talk about, you know, uh, or not. Oh, you know, basically, um, it's just the idea that basically all of these folks voted for Trump in 2020. All of these Republicans, all of these likely caucus scores supported him last time. Um, and so, you know, these these this is his sort of natural base of support. So it seems likely to me um, that they would end up back with Trump in in 2024 in the general election. Yeah. You said it was a, a mix. Those those not supporting Trump. We have January 6th. We have the indictments. Uh, we have policy things. Uh, Dave, did, did any of those or uh, Haley, did any of those stand out as stronger than the others or were they all pretty much equally balanced in, in terms of dissuading support for Trump? Um, among uh, the Republican respondents, what I found pretty shocking was um, that Policy priorities changing just did not really resonate. Um, it was much more likely for people to say that they thought it was time for a change or they liked one of the other candidates better. But, um, yeah, policy priorities were not um, a big factor in their responses. Mm-hmm. What does that tell you, Dave? Um, well, I mean, it, it, to me, it looks like it's a little bit of a of a mix. Um the you know one of the things Haley and I did was we did sort of look at these folks um, uh, and and try to break down you know given the reason they gave for not supporting Donald Trump which candidates are they actually supporting other than Trump and there seems to be a little bit of a divide here um, that the folks who are saying that they don't support Trump based on the indictments or January sixth um, not too surprisingly uh, Chris Christie does. Well, relatively well, considering his his state in the poll. But the other candidate that does well amongst them is Nikki Haley, that she's the one who that the sort of really anti-Trump Republicans seem to be gravitating towards. And the more milder uh, uh, or not really sort of focused on Trump opposition, the it's time for a change or I just like one of the candidates better. That seems to be the DeSantis base. Um, so, you know, there's some sense of if one of these candidates is really going to challenge Trump, they sort of need to coalesce support. Um, and that's a little suggestion that that might be hard because they're defecting from Trump for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about um, what what goes into this uh, Haley, Eleanor, and of course Dave here about creating a narrative. Um, we have the data that is collected by polls, but you know, in the media, we and with every polls release, we talk about a narrative. What why is it important to develop a narrative to go along with the polling data? And how do you develop a, na- a narrative? Yeah, Haley and I talk a lot about this in our conversations going into this. Um, I mean, creating a narrative is so important because you look at these numbers, you look at these statistics, and I mean, you have them on your plate, but creating a narrative and developing why people might be thinking and feeling and um, polling these ways is super important. It can help these candidates inform their next um, campaign decisions. It can help us as voters figure out, you know, what's going to be best for us and um, kind of looking away from the numbers and crafting a story can just help you interpret it more and Mm -hmm. understand your surroundings a bit better in the political world. How do you craft a story or a narrative that accurately tracks with the data that uh, you are confident your narrative is is uh, uh, on or approximately on. 
I mean, I think you just have to look at the numbers and you have to let it inform you. But I mean, you can't take it too far, of course. I I mean, um, a narrative is important, but the numbers are the facts at the end of the day. Yeah. Dave, jump yeah, I mean, in here. I think yeah. Part- yeah, go ahead. Sure. I mean, I think the key thing is to sort of be intellectually honest, right? That, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do um, is to, to keep an arm's length from our wishes about what the narrative could be um, or would be and instead sort of try to ground it, like Eleanor said, in in reality. Um, you know, this is sort of the distinction to me between social science and punditry. Um, you know, social science try to understand the world the way that it is and why it is that way as opposed to trying to, to forecast or create a world um, like pundits try to, and it's, I mean, they're, they're really different enterprises. And so the, mm-hmm. the, what we're trying to do here is, you know, um, accurately reflect the, the state of the world to try to communicate to your audience or to other audiences, um, how, what, what's happening and why. Mm-hmm. We've got just a couple minutes left and to our political science, uh, undergraduate students here, Eleanor and Haley, uh, you know, com- the country doesn't have a lot of confidence in polling, political polling. Um, uh, Eleanor and Haley, now that you've worked in polling, this sort of polling, do you have more or less confidence in the accuracy here? Um, Haley first, perhaps. Um, I think that my trust in polls has definitely grown since um, becoming a part of this independent study and also just um, taking more political science courses. I mean, social scientists, when they're conducting polls, they their goal is to create a better understanding of the world and bad polls don't serve that goal. So um, learning more about like the challenges that they're faced with when um, trying to reach respondents and make sure they're Gauging things accurately and um, not uh, extrapolating too much from a given uh, respondent, I think that my trust has definitely grown in Mm. polls. What about you, Eleanor? I can only agree with Haley. I think that in doing this independent study, you realize the amount of conversations and collaboration you have behind these polls. It's not one person entering and putting these numbers. It's groups and teams vetting each other and making sure that the information we're putting out is um, as accurate as possible. Mm -hmm. Dave Peterson, we have a few seconds uh, left. Uh, Help us look forward to the next installment. Yep. Uh, The next installment, let's see, I think we have next week was when we have to develop the next battery of questions, and it'll be the week after that, so around November 15th week before Thanksgiving, before we have the results. Um, You know, we'll see with all of the candidates dropping out, and maybe there will be more uh, dropping out between now and then, Mm -hmm. how much change there'll be. Um, None of those candidates were doing very well, so it might not be that much change. All right. Very good. Dave Peterson, Lucan Professor of Political Science at Iowa State University, organizer of this uh, ISU Civics poll. We'll look forward to that third installment. Eleanor Chalstrom and Haley Stone, uh, two ISU undergrads majoring in political science, thank you very much for joining us. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.
It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Which trials? Uh, you may think their relevance is confined to the past. However, my next guest is here to discuss how the impact of witch trials in Europe, also here in the U.S., is not merely something of historical significance. It is that as well, of course. Uh, but their impact can be felt today. Waltraud Meyerhofer is with us, a University of Iowa professor in German and Global Health Studies. Welcome to our program. Good to be here. You have recently translated a work from, I believe, the 18th or 17th century. We'll, we'll start there. How about we start there and work toward the present uh, to find out the relevance of, uh, well, which trials and their themes for today. Uh, tell us a little bit about your recent scholarly work. Yes, this novel is called The Child Witches of Lucerne and Buchau. And it's by a Swiss author named Evelyn Hasler. Uh, she writes a lot of works about what she calls forgotten persons uh, in history who had a real impact. Uh, a shout out to the translation program at the University of Iowa because uh, those, uh, I started the work on translating those novels with the help of undergraduate students at the University of Iowa. Very good. So this novel, The Child Witches, takes place in the 17th century in what is today Switzerland and the south of Germany. She emphasizes in her style of writing and allusions that the kind of blaming outsiders, newcomers, defenseless people for any ill that occurs in society is not something new. And the witch trials are a very uh, prominent case for that. But there's analogies in the present. Let, let's let's uh, talk a little bit more about uh, Evelyn Hassler's uh, novel that you translated here. This is uh, is based on the true story of three children prosecuted for witchcraft uh, in 17th century Europe. Tell us a little bit more about this case. Mm -hmm. So uh, she worked with documents that actually at that time, in the late 90s, no historian had examined yet. And the two cases are separate, but in the novel she connects them with a confessor who's witness to both trials. The first one is a girl uh, who is orphaned, uh, 11 years old, and she has a vivid imagination and claims one day she can make birds out of clay which is, of course, a, a familiar story also in the Bible. So she may have heard that in her Sunday school and then just uh, went with it in her imagination. But she was overheard by people who didn't wish her well and ended up incarcerated and eventually executed. The, the story of the two other children, a brother and sister, is similar they were given up by their father after uh, their mother died and he married again. And the new wife didn't want to have the children around. So they were sort of passed on in the community, mostly as cheap laborers. 
but also her employers, their employers, uh, were very skeptical because they looked different. Their mother had been from outside of that small canton in Switzerland, and they looked yeah, different. They had dark hair, and the girl at 13 or so, she was very attractive. This is also then... Um, taken up in the trial records, and she's investigated a lot about, as was common at the time, us about uh, making a pact with the devil, which in, in people's fantasy at the time consisted of sexual relations. So uh, the, the trial records are very uh, explicit The historical core of that is that she was then kept in an abbey, which was a place for noble women to spend their life, to be educated and follow their interests until they became married or not. Then they stayed longer. But uh, this girl is kept at the abbey for another three years, uh, and also her brother, until they are of age to be executed. Mm. Oh, my. Huh. So in, in, in researching this, and you've done some other work um, that has made you something of a witchcraft, a historical <laughs> witchcraft and witch trial expert, is that, I don't think that's overstating it, but you've spent a lot of time doing this, haven't yes. you? Yeah. So, so with that instance here, let's, um, of, of course, here in the U.S., we're most familiar with the Salem uh, witch trials in colonial Massachusetts in the late 1600s. Uh, and that was um, uh, when over 100 uh, suspects, uh, mostly women, uh, but also men, I believe, too, tried as witches, uh, executed uh, many of them um, in, in very awful ways, as a matter of fact. So give us some wider context context about uh, how common witch trials were in Europe and uh, and how then they came to America for a certain period in um, in the late 1600s so 1690s is quite late for witchcraft trials many people think they were a medieval thing but They really started off around 1500, so what historians refer to as the early modern period, because that's when already the Reformation is going on, the Catholic Church is being criticized. Luther and other reformers teach that people should read the Bible themselves and also book print uh, with movable letters is around. So manuals on witchcraft get published and are available to readers on a much larger scale than they were before. And that is also when the theological teaching on witchcraft changes. In the Middle Ages, Believing in witchcraft and doing magic was something like other sins that could be forgiven. 
in the early modern, it becomes, especially in continental Europe, uh, north of the Alps, it becomes a so-called exceptional crime. That means um, torture is allowed, and the most important evidence is a confession, meaning so it's no longer just a, a sin, but it's something that can be punished by death. And there were demonologists out there who insisted that witchcraft was very dangerous and needed to be eradicated. And that's when it becomes part of the trials to ask the accused to name others. And that was an, an important component of the Salem trials. The Salem trials otherwise um, have a lot in common, of course, with witchcraft trials in England, which were a bit different. In England, the pact with the devil, meaning giving up the Christian belief, was less emphasized. Instead, there was a lot of curiosity about familiars and about spectrum evidence, which is then very important in Salem. And in England, uh, the those convicted or who confessed um, were actually could be pardoned, whereas in continental Europe, those who had confessed were especially prone to being executed. Wow. Well, I feel, Valtraud, you, you could speak for hours on this, and you uh, are, have such an in-depth knowledge of this. I wanted to, in the, with the limited time that we have today, I want to bring this up to to the present because, the, the as I mentioned in the introduction, you make the case that what is lingering about that, that touched on witch trials, what is the relevance for today that we should keep in mind um, in, in 2023? Mm-hmm. Well, the historical witchcraft trials were often initiated because somebody was blamed for an ill for a harm that had occurred. So, for example, illness, the death, especially the death of children, uh, people couldn't explain how diseases spread. That was a time of the plague. And, of course, people didn't know where it came from. It could show up anywhere and it could erase the population of whole villages and towns. So they looked for scapegoats, somebody who was responsible, personally responsible. And they said such and such person had wished that upon the others. And actually, I prefer the term uh, evil sorcerer because witchcraft uh, or which has become so gendered. So although historically most of the executed and accused have in fact been women, when we say which, uh, it's still we see uh, a woman, we see especially an old woman, somebody who's renitent, who doesn't 
quite go along with what's expected of her. <laughs> right, but I wonder, we have so many other references, I mean, to witches. We have the uh, the Harry Potter uh, series, the Blair Witch po- uh, Project count in our, in our popular culture, but we also have it used, uh, I assume, it, it, I'm not sure what sense this is used in. We have a former president who used over a hundred times witch hunt to describe those who were, who were after him, he thought unfairly. Yeah, so witch hunt has become synonymous for somebody who's innocent and accused, uh, which goes for for many of the witchcraft trials. But of course, our fascination with magic and the supernatural has much wider impact. And there are still people who, who believe in it today. How many people do we know? Oh, lots. Just look at the Internet. There's lots of pages that uh, recommend magic spells, and people visit psyches to find out about their future. There's lots of books about how to cast spells, not to mention all the Harry Potter and fantasy novels. People just uh, have a fascination with with magic and supernatural forces. And it seems the more our world becomes rational and regulated, we want to escape. And right. <laughs> we seek a, a different world in the supernatural where simply wishing something comes true and... Imagination is an important gift. Uh, Children especially like to read and act out uh, fantastical elements. And and, and is it that, I mean, in in the world that we have today, uh, witchcraft, if you believe in it, gives you a sense of control, doesn't it? Oh, definitely. And so that's an appeal. Yes, that's definitely an appeal. And historians also say that actually there may have been quite a few accused of witchcraft who did not feel like innocent victims, but were convinced they had performed magic and they had actually brought evil on somebody who whom they didn't like. Hmm. Uh, And yes, it's a form of control that even today we embrace, especially because it's control that doesn't require us to do anything. (laughs) Are are there places in the 21st century today, uh, countries where witchcraft is still practiced and believed in by, uh, let's say, a a large part of the population? Mm -hmm. We know, of course, here in the U.S., uh, Wicca is acknowledged as a religion. But apart from that, witchcraft beliefs are still very prominent in most African countries, in Indonesia, and especially on on lots of islands in the Pacific. And it's very sad. For example, Every once in a while, one can read in the news of witch hunts somewhere in Indonesia where there isn't a trial as there used to be in Europe or in Salem, but people just accuse somebody of of doing evil and wishing bad on others and, and hunting them and lynching. 
which is, of course, from our Western perspective, a human rights violation. And also in some African countries, uh, the strong belief in witchcraft has resulted in something called witchcraft camps. Hmm. Uh, but that's where people accused of witchcraft go to find refuge. And there's one in Ghana uh, that filled up immediately when it was opened. There's some uh, hundred women, it's usually mostly women and their children, who find refuge there mm. where they cannot be uh, yeah, hunted down anymore. Okay, fascinating. Um, um, plenty more there. We'll have to tap into your expertise again at some time in the future. We've run out of time for now. Waltraud Meyerhofer is a University of Iowa professor, both in German and global health studies. Um, we'll check in with you again in the future. Uh, you have a great resource here in, <laughs> in the historical roots of witchcraft and witch trials. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That does it for today. River to River, produced by Caitlin Troutman, Danny Gear, and Kate Perez uh, today. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm. Must be